This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tanse, hello. My name is Shayla Stonechild, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm speaking to you from the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. Every week on the show, I share stories of Indigenous women from Turtle Island and beyond to challenge the mainstream narrative around Indigenous identity and offer up a new category of role models so that the next generations may thrive. We'll put a spotlight on issues facing Indigenous women and explore how we can reclaim our voice, our body, and our spirit, and our power that have been silenced and stolen throughout history and humanity. I'm super excited to introduce my guest in this episode. Her name is Cheyenne Laskanik, and she is of Muscogee, Italian, and Scottish ancestry, and she is the founder of Three Medicines, Longhouse, and Three Medicines Birth. With a little over a decade of experience as a yoga teacher and as many years of recovery from substance addiction behind her, Cheyenne has made it her purpose to live in integrity and to create places of connection for all people. Drawing on her own experience, she is also a drug and alcohol abuse counselor who has brought wellness programs into schools, halfway houses, rehab centers, and studios. Cheyenne is also focused on honoring her Muscogee heritage and works to protect tribal sovereignty while also integrating intersectional partnerships with all our relations on this land. Finally, she is a mom of four and a wife. We literally spoke about all of it, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. So hi, hi. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Cheyenne. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you so much, Shayla. I'm so glad I am here. And if you want to just introduce yourself, like the traditional territory, where you come from, um, if there was something that wasn't mentioned in that intro, uh, it's your invitation. That was a really big intro, um, but, I am, <laughs> but I am on Haudenosaunee and Lenape lands of Western PA. Um, my traditional homelands are the Southeast. Um, all the Muscogee homelands have, were relocated to Oklahoma. Um, so that is where my nation currently resides. Um, but I am over here in uh, Western PA. So yeah, that's pretty much me. Have you always lived there or where did you grow up? So I did not always live here. My family has lived here for a very long time. Um, my mother's side of the family has been here for quite some time. I grew up in Southern Ohio, but I actually just moved here five years ago from, um, South Lake Tahoe, California. So I spent a lot of time out West in Arizona. I lived in Arizona for three years. I lived in Idaho New Mexico, and then California until I moved back here after my, um, first child was born. And so growing up, um, you know, what was that experience like for you growing up? For me, I grew up in Canada, so I have no idea what it's like even living in the States and also being having indigenous ancestry and also being mixed. So like, what was your experience growing up? My experience growing up was really rough um, because I felt as an indigenous person who lived in Southern Ohio too. Southern Ohio is very, it was, I mean, it was filled with white people and that's all I had, but it's not even like, like not even like mixed white people, like, like blonde haired, blue eyed white people everywhere. And it was Mm -hmm. just, um, It was just a very different experience living there. I felt like I was in a society that I couldn't fit into, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and not only that, but like my school's names were 
names of racists. Like I mm. went, to, you know, like I went to General Sherman and General Sherman is known to like, um, he, he had a big quote about he wanted to be removing the Indians, you know, like that's what he was mm. for. And it's like, that's where I went to school. So mm-hmm. it was, it was like, I was in a place where I, I didn't fit in and I felt, mm-hmm. um, from the society at large, like that I was in, and then also disconnected from my own homelands too. So mm-hmm. it was a very lonely experience. And so what has your journey been like, you know, re- reconnecting to your indigenous roots? Did that happen? Or was that that like later on in life? So what is what is great is my father was always, you know, he always wanted me to be connected to to my roots, to my heritage, to my community, to my nation. And so I always was left with that responsibility of like what it means to be, you know, Creek or Muscogee. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I at least my grandma, you know, she made it so that I had, you know, I had Regilia and I had other things mm-hmm. that at least like was mine. I never learned how to jingle or to, you know, do anything like mm-hmm. that. But I had stuff that was sacred to me. Um, and that was past me that felt nice. And, you know, so reclaiming has been probably within when I got sober, um, mm. I started being deeply into my community because I needed to, in order to, in order to stay sober, um, and mm. find wholeness within myself. And so when did you actually, um, officially like walk, uh, the red road, if that's what you call it, or when you decided to become sober, when, when did that happen and why, why did that shift happen? So it's a really, it was a, it was a really big downpour, um, was my, Mm. was my childhood and was my usage and, and, and addiction throughout my, um, throughout using. And I was in, I was left in a very, very hopeless place. Like I, you know, I kind of said, like, I felt lonely. Right. So I was this Mm -hmm. person who was really lonely. I was really disconnected and Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be disconnected from everyone. I, you know, I didn't want to be, feel like a alien, you know, I Mm -hmm. I didn't want these things. I wanted to be connected and I couldn't figure out how to do it. So honestly, I kind of gave up on life for a while Mm -hmm. and in doing that, I just, you know, put all of everything on my body and, and all of these drugs and just, and just did it for quite some time. And I was really grateful, actually, you know, I was, my personal story is that I was intervened and, you know, I was arrested actually. Mm. That was my changing point. And they were like, you know, you can, you can maybe have a chance this time. And I mean, this wasn't my first time being arrested. I actually, you know, I spent time in therapy. I spent time in psych wards before when I was younger. Like my parents didn't know what to help me with. Um, Mm -hmm. And then finally this big chance, it just, you know, it hit me that I could do something different. Um, So I was actually Mm -hmm. 17 and I've been sober ever since. Um, So it was about almost 12 years ago. And it was, it was a very long and hard process, but Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful for, obviously. I mean, it's awesome. So yeah, I respect I respect your journey and also like how you're just so vocal kind of about it on social media. I feel like a lot of the shame and the stigma around drug and alcohol abuse is usually um, sometimes dealt alone. Like I, I don't see a lot of people really voicing it. And I think that's also where the um, maybe the stigma comes from is not uh, having these conversations. And so what would your advice be for, you know, maybe someone in the younger generation or not even the younger generation, but someone who's looking to maybe shift their life to lead a more sober life? 
My biggest advice is probably just knowing that you can change your story anytime. And I think that's what held me back for so long is I didn't, I didn't know that I had that capability and we Mm. really do. And, you know, if at any time you, you know, it's, it just feels too heavy and too big. We can do something differently and we're allowed and we can honor that choice of ours. And, you know, this, this, the red road and the silver road and, and the way of life. And, you know, I was taught that of course, like it is, it is our natural way of being, getting back to the creator and getting back to, you know, a, a community, getting back to all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's okay if we're not there, you know, and and it's okay if we seem lost and like we don't know how to get there. But mm-hmm. just give yourself permission to know that you can and, and mm-hmm. it's always available for you. And it's hard yeah. to do something different also. I will say mm-hmm. that. It is so hard to do something different and to be sometimes the odd one out, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and find people who understand that and allow your shame of that to go away too. I think that is a really important thing to touch on is like sobriety can often feel, you know, very isolating because it is uh, very normalized in Western society and even um, surrounding us, advertising, social media. Uh, so it can feel like really isolating. And also I'm like my my family has its own history with, you know, addiction and drug and alcohol abuse. And for me, I never really knew where to look for help because I feel like the health care system within Canada is also pretty uh, racist. And so I don't I don't trust the healthcare system. And I know my dad didn't trust it and even my siblings. And so did you find the um, support you needed through the healthcare system? Or what did that look like? So no. Um, and that's actually a big part of my story is like, well, when I think of like healthcare system, you know, like I was sent to therapy at a young age. And I mean, because I, I mean, I had overdosed many times and, you know, and they would be sending me to therapy and psych wards and like all of these things. And, and I, every time I felt judged, I felt, you know, disconnected mm-hmm. from these people. They didn't know, they didn't understand me and, and they didn't. And it wasn't until I found some people who actually understood who I was. Um, and they happened to be, you know, I had only two indigenous influences at the time. Um, mm-hmm. but at least I found people who also were sober. Like it was for me, um, you know, I found it in the rooms of, you know, AA, which is, you know, out there. And, but there is also, you know, indigenous groups of AA, which is hard mm-hmm. to find. They exist. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something called Wellbriety, actually, and it's made by an indigenous founder. And, you know, he's actually turned the steps into like a medicine wheel. And it's just much it's this not judgy Western, you know, medicine. Yeah. type. I don't think that can help us to the extent that we need because it's not culturally safe for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there are things I had to find something outside to find something culturally safe for me. Uh, there's a conference that I was just a part of and these uh, indigenous doctors were actually talking about this concept of two-eyed seeing of bringing in the Western healing and also having the indigenous ways um, and to really find more people that know that that two-eyed seeing exists. And so I know you now do a lot of work within the wellness industry. And so what has that shift been like for you to now teach others, you know, how to, balance their own uh like mind body spirit like how has that shift been for you from having your own addiction to now teaching people about a healthy way of living 
For me, the biggest shift is I teach what I would have wanted to be taught, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where what I go for. So when I'm working with people and because I was taught yoga and healthy way of living when I started, um, you know, in recovery and, in, in, and it really helped me gain a sense of groundedness, gain a sense of reassurance, gain a sense of confidence. And when I started going out and working in the wellness community, it was not a safe place for me because of the whitewashing and just people and attitudes. And there's the, it was just not a safe place. So, and I think it has its purpose, but not for me and not for a lot of people mm-hmm. like me. So mm-hmm. now that I am teaching and I've been teaching in the, in these ways and in these rooms, it's just, I just take it from experience of what I know helped me and what didn't help people like me. Um, mm. so it's, it's wonderful because I get to bring that experience um, of just uh, releasing all of the shame that I can, right? Because mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest shame. I never want to bring more shame into these spaces. And I felt like for me personally, that's what was coming into these spaces with me was more shame mm-hmm. than I go into the normal Western world of wellness. And so now I'm so grateful that I just get to release as much as possible when I'm with people. I think that's a good point to bring up because that was a lot of the resistance I had to going into yoga teacher training. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was taught by uh, white instructors and white mentors. And so have you been able to connect with other indigenous yoga instructors or other indigenous wellness facilitators? And yeah, like what has that for me, I feel like I'm always taking up space in like colonial places. And mm-hmm. so it's hard sometimes to find other indigenous yoga instructors and wellness people. And so, yeah, have you even had a chance to connect with other indigenous yoga instructors? What's really great is I have, which has been wonderful and not too many because I mean, they're just, you know, we are spread out as people, mm-hmm. but what's been great about the last, I would say two years is I have found an amazing community of not just indigenous people, but I'm really connected with a lot of South Asians, um, which yeah. has in the yoga community, me has just expanded my own everything. It just expanded, mm-hmm. you know, how I really show up for them in yoga too. Um, and their rooms because like I, I've learned a lot about what it means to be an, uh, an accomplice with them and mm-hmm. what it means to be practicing this with them and with me and, and just the whole mixture. So I'm mm-hmm. really grateful for what I've been able to find in just the entire community that's um, really dedicated to a different kind of wellness. Mm. And where did you take your yoga teacher training? So I took my yoga teacher training in a place that's now closed down in Arizona. Um, it was over 10 years ago, I think, that I did it. And But I have practiced in the Ashtanga method. So okay. all of my teachers are Ashtanga teachers. All of them have studied from the um, in Mysore, India. And so that's kind of like the lineage that I've been practicing and all of the teachers that I've followed. Um, I continuously work with them also. So even though, you know, I did my teacher training and um, I work with a number of different teachers since then, and it's nice to catch up and continue to be under their influence because it's always just a learning experience for me still. Yeah, I feel like yoga is something you could always be learning and like you could never not learn something new from yoga itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have like tools that you use on like daily rituals that keep you centered like um, like your yoga practice or what what helps you when you're feeling overwhelmed come back to reclaiming your own power? 
So what, you know, because for me, my, so I do try, I also have a lot of children in my home. So it's really hard to have dedicated time and space for me on a regular basis. But I do try to, I try to what's called live a kind of a prayerful way, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. living in a prayerful way helps me continue my yoga and my meditation every day. So I know that I try to say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to do my my senses meditation in the morning. And usually it's usually while I'm drinking coffee, maybe I've got the kids settled and I can do some meditation in the morning that's based on senses. And, and that helps me because, you know, it doesn't take some, some time, but I really just settle myself down with, um, you know, focusing on what I can touch, what I can taste, what I can feel, mm-hmm. what I can mm-hmm. hear. And as I do that, I usually can find like a nice and settled, settled place. I do try to do physical asana as much as possible, but I'm really into breath work because it also helps mm-hmm. my kids. Um, mm-hmm. So bringing them in with me, and it's there's not a time, a day that a toddler doesn't freak out and we get a breath, do breath work. So, you know, having that as a regular experience with me in the day is really nice. Um, but also just reclaiming my power is a lot about helping other people too. So. Mm-hmm. Every day that I am able to help others and and, and, and connect with other people, and um, I feel like I gain more from that than they probably do. So, so uh, kind of going back, you said you went to therapy, but like, what would you, th- what do you think would need to change within uh, the way people deal with um, addiction? Like, what? What, how can we support people, I guess, is the mm-hmm. right way. How can we support people that we know may be struggling with addiction or even if it's ourselves? My biggest thing about being able to support, you know, but the root causes of addiction are usually, I mean, there's, there's lots of them. There's, you know, your generational trauma, there's, you know, your genes, there's what you experienced as a kid and, and looking at all those roots. A lot of the time it is this disconnection though, and we'll find that this disconnection spiritually um, or this disconnection emotionally. And if you, you know, the thing is people, if we are struggling ourselves, you know, the biggest thing is knowing that there is hope and you really have mm-hmm. to touch that hope of there's another way to feel because that's what it was with me. I, I promised other people I wouldn't feel any different than I was because it was so painful and so lonely and so, so, uh, so filled with anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. And I didn't believe people until I saw them and they mm-hmm. said, I promise I felt the way you did. And I promise we can feel a different way. And then if you do and you love people who are struggling, the best thing that we can do is also encourage that there is probably another way, but also don't shame them out of what is happening, Mm. right? Because Mm -hmm. we don't want to contribute to that too. You know, don't Mm -hmm. enable them, right? We don't want to, you know, enable and like, you know, oh, it's okay that you're always, you know, but we want to be able to not shame them over it. So I think that that big balance of, well, don't enable, but also don't make a you know shameful experience of it, and because this is something that millions of people suffer with, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's a big deal, and people people are dying because of it. And well, we don't need to have that shame attached to it. We need to be able to talk and love these people and let them know there can be a different way. That's the next thing I wanted to touch on. Is I feel like. Um, 
2020 was a real big uh, awakening for everyone and not in the best way. Uh, we lost a lot of people because of COVID, but also because of, uh, you know, overdoses and drugs and alcohol. Um, I believe that here in Vancouver, actually, we've lost more people to overdoses than we have um, the actual virus. Um, and so I guess for me, I'm always like curious to know if there's signs that we should look out for, like, how do we know someone may be struggling? For me, I'm not so I don't know. I don't know unless someone tells me but I also realize some people don't want to tell that part of themselves as well. I think the biggest thing is, you know, it's so hard because people are good at hiding these things, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. we live in this life where we feel like we have to hide these big, huge problems and, and these things about ourselves. And because it is shame, because it's criminalized, right? You know, addiction and drugs are criminalized. So we have to hide it when it comes to, you know, a state level. And then when it comes to a personal level, it's just really hard to open up. But like, hey, I'm using cocaine, you know, who did, yeah. you know, on a regular basis that you don't know of. Maybe, we're, you know, we're doing it as friends, but like, I'm also doing it, you know, every single mm -hmm. day or, and, you know, whatever towards it. And I think like the biggest thing about looking for signs is really just if you've noticed that, you know, someone that you love and care about is not in a safe place emotionally, then that's where we kind of, that's where I would look for showing connection for them, right? And showing, mm -hmm. you know, up for them in that way. But also if someone is not willing to share, there's no way mm -hmm. we can do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And what I, what helped me personally is you know, my, my own grandmother, you know, she was always willing to tell me about her sister who was a pill popping, you know, 80 year old and died of it, you know, and my, my grandfather was an alcoholic and, and everyone spoke about these people, not in a shameful way, but in a, in a mm. way of, okay, this is what it was. And it was, it was what it was. Right. Mm. And I think that, you know, that helped me accept what I was and what I was doing because it, it removed a little bit of the shame and made it a normal conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more we make a normal conversation out of these things, the more that we have the ability to help people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, yeah, even me, I had my own um, issues with substance abuse when I was younger. And it was something that I never wanted to share because I thought, you know, if I want to be in a position of power, then I have to betray this certain image. But that's not based in like authenticity or coming from a place of honesty. So it's really like, I guess, getting honest with yourself and bringing awareness to, you know, even knowing your toxic cycles. For me, I, I feel like I have to like I know my habits and then once I do something that goes me back into like my past self, I guess you can say, then it's kind of like a wake up call. And okay. so that's kind of the reason why I wanted to um, focus more on indigenous representation within wellness. I think a lot of um, the wellness industry, well, even for indigenous people, we never really had those role models. Like you said, you knew like two indigenous influencers like back in the day. So why yeah. do you think it's so important that if you do of why we have authentic indigenous representation? Ah, because it means that we can we can open up, right? I mean, for me, it means if I see someone who is an authentically indigenous person who is authentically showing up in the ways that I might not think I can, then I'm more I'm going to, right? You know, for mm -hmm. me, one of those big huge things was seeing an indigenous sober person and hearing mm -hmm. their words, and mm -hmm. then knowing, well, if that person can do it, then maybe I can, because mm -hmm. we. Have 
be able to see these things and these people. And it's so important because we cannot all relate to each other in every way. Yeah. But, you know, and it does, it can feel lonely when you don't feel like you have anybody like you who feels like you do. And then who can get in these, in these places that are, you know, you see as, 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 as beautiful, you know? And mm-hmm. so seeing people who might've felt like me and are now in these positions that are awesome, that's good for everyone, right? The mm-hmm. more that, we, the more that we have the ability to connect with somebody on that level and, and, and look up to them because they might be like you, the better that is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, what would your advice be to like the younger generation that may want to do the work that you're doing now and, you know, start helping other people and to model, you know, sobriety, what would your advice be to the younger generation? Uh, that they're just amazing for living and existing and, you know, for, and that they also, once again, can change their story at any time and become whoever they want to be at any given time. And, you know, they hold the ultimate, uh, sovereignty of their knowledge and mm-hmm. they should always hold on to that and understand that and express that in the ways that feel the best to them and that they just, they can, they have the ability to do anything. And there is always hope, even if it feels like there's just really not, they're mm-hmm. always, even if you feel so, you know, unique and, uh, you know, in this place of, you know, well, it's not going to work for me. It can, mm-hmm. it absolutely mm-hmm. can for you, mm-hmm. for everyone. You know, it can. Do you have people that you look up to now or that you are inspired by currently? I do. You know, I have a lot of different people right now that are just like doing amazing things and and using their voice and their authenticity and continuously to move towards a better and a greater society and earth. Um. And like the the focus of this podcast really is to bring more awareness to these role models, these indigenous women matriarchs. The word matriarch, I think, means something different for everyone. Uh, what does the word matriarch mean to you? So you know the like the different dictionary definition is you know a woman who in the family is a you know a strong leader. And for me, I take it as like an entire historically based in my indigenous community, matriarchs women were integral parts of society everywhere, right? We were integral parts of community. We were integral parts of the family. For me, matriarch, I think of a woman reclaiming that integral part of community um, because that's what she is, you know, and that's what matriarchs are. That's what women are. We are supposed to be integral parts of each and every space of community. That's what I think of in when I think of matriarch. I think uh, it also resonates with a lot of work that you do, too, because you said um, not only are you a yoga instructor, but I believe you also work with uh, mothers and are you are you a doula? I am. No. Yes. I'm a oh, you worker. are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought yes. so. Yes. What ha- and mm-hmm. so that I feel like is also um, almost reclaiming, um, you know, because uh, for I just realized this, I hosted the Indigenous Doulas Conference, and oh, I didn't even know the word doula was like a colonial way of mm-hmm. um, uh, speak. Like they were using what were they called? They were saying aunties, aunties to like decolonize okay. the word of doula. Do you relate to doula, or would you say it something completely else? So I've always called myself a birth worker because okay. of, yeah, so it's just always been birth worker because I feel like even though that doesn't even properly, you know, 
encapsulate everything that goes into working with women in birth. Cause it's not just birth. You're working with women in a ceremony, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is what birth is. Right. And so I haven't found a perfect word to say that, but it's birth worker. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I, I, I love doing that. It's an amazing part of my life. And what made you want to be a birth worker? Um, after, before I gave birth to my second child was when I decided to really, um, really start helping mothers. And Mm -hmm. it was because of my traumatic experience with my first, but also my, once again, non-Indigenous role mothers, um, non-Indigenous role models who are mothers. Because mm-hmm. there weren't very many out there that I could that I was around and that I could connect to, and obviously in the media there wasn't any. But and I always felt like, oh, this colonial way of mothering doesn't fit me, and mm-hmm. it was actually like a really hard experience learning to trust myself as a mother. And so as I get, went in, and I had a very long like five year break in between my first and my second kid, and when I went with there, I started working with the local midwife center, and you know about. It, you know, uncolonizing parenthood and instinctual parenthood and changing the way, you know, we work for women and, and we work as mothers and really reclaiming that instinctual identity that, um, I was shamed for as a new mother, um, for, you know, listening to what my own things were. So it was just really, it felt like a responsibility to bring that back Mm. to all of us. Uh, what would your advice be to, you know, non-Indigenous people that maybe do want to decolonize, you know, how they uh, perceive the world, whether it be through motherhood or, um, you know, being a birth worker or what would your advice be to non-Indigenous people when it comes to just even really it could be anything, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my biggest thing, and you know, I'm actually, I'm working on like this workshop right now and it's, um, and it's really fun because I'm trying, like, I'm actually honing in on what I want non-Indigenous people to know. And it's like, what I want non-Indigenous people to know is I want us to all take responsibility. I want mm. us all to leave the, leave the, the guilt, um, that we have because it's not serving anybody. And I want us to move forth in responsibility and love for each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of that looks like big respect. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of that looks like I want people to know what territory they live on and Mm -hmm. that it's an illegal occupation probably because none Mm -hmm. of the treaties were followed and Mm -hmm. they've all been broken. And then that's our responsibility, not your fault, but our responsibility, you know? Mm -hmm. And I want people that to know that, you know, we need you decolonizing or uncolonizing, right? Mm -hmm. you know, non-Indigenous people to do this. We want to work with, I want to work with you and I want to, you know, be in this, but we have to do it with respect and responsibility to the world around us, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with just unparalleled uh, love instead of fear and Mm -hmm. love instead of ownership and, and love instead of, yeah, just ownership and, and uh, instead Mm -hmm. of ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, accountability and like taking the time to uh, understand the history of which territory you're living on, even the territory from where you come from. There is a lot of work. Uh, there's a lot of like language and vocabulary that is thrown around on social media. And I feel like sometimes it can water down the sense. And so do you uh, what would your definition of decolonization actually be? 
So I believe that decolonization is in fact like of the land, right? So I believe that it means that we no longer colonize the land, which means we return it to indigenous people. Uh, that's mm -hmm. what I believe colonizing means. But when I think of it in the metaphorical sense, and when I, not metaphorical sense, but when I think of it, when it applies to things that are not on the land, I think of it more of like an uncolonizing, you know, and, and in this uncolonizing, I think of it as detangling the roots of, of, of colonization, which are mm -hmm. you know, capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy. And we have to remove those from the roots of, of the real things. Mm -hmm. um, once you can take away the capitalism, the patriarchy and the white supremacy of the roots, then you're uncolonizing it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's, um, yeah, there's like a lot of talk. I don't know if it's relatable to the state. I feel like the States honestly is like, uh a few steps back when it like i know there's a lot of like racism that happens here and like the our whole system is also like super um not supportive of indigenous people there's the truth and reconciliation here truth and reconciliation act and i feel like they put more money into working against the trc than they actually mm -hmm. do to committing uh actual reconciliation to indigenous peoples here and mm -hmm. so what what do you think is one actionable step that people can take in their daily, um, on a daily basis to do, uh, you know, to decolonize uh, white supremacy and capitalism? What is one daily action? Well, I'm all about the action. I love the action word, right? And I think that mm -hmm. people have to first identify what they're looking for, right? What are mm -hmm. they looking for by uncolonizing? Do they want to um, decolonize the land? Are they hoping to help give back the land to indigenous people? You know, then they probably have to know and take action to getting involved with indigenous people, right? You know, that yeah. would be your first action step. If, if that's what you want to do and, and you want to, um, you know, do that for the land. Also, you have to learn about the land, protecting the yeah. land, right? You have to gain a responsibility for the land. And I think changing that relationship, you know, I think that's where you maybe start, change your relationship, learn about your indigenous community around you, and then learn about the land because that's, mm -hmm. you know, what's happening here. That's what we're all trying to protect. That's what we all need back. We need the, you mm -hmm. know, so really starting to learn about that is going to, is an actionable step that we can do. Yeah, there was this one book that I was reading. Um, I, it's called Sacred Instructions by Sherry Mitchell. I don't know if you've read it or I not yet. Actually. Yeah, and she talks about even how language, like the way that indigenous people, some native languages, we speak through a sense of kinship to the land and the mm -hmm. water and the earth and the sky, mm -hmm. each other. Like you literally can't fragment the word from its mm -hmm. uh, meaning. And so I feel like even the English language, the colonial language is so mm -hmm. fragmented from um, if you think the land is separate than you, then you can do harm to the land. And yeah. so it's coming back to that relationship based approach. Mm -hmm. um, moving forward, there's this theme of indigenous futurism. And mm -hmm. so what does indigenous futurism mean to you, if anything? Mm -hmm. So when I think of indigenous futurism, I think of, I mean, it, of course, I would love to see the future as indigenous, right? Um, I mean, yes, of course, I want the future to be based in kinship, loving communal communities, right? I want us to have a, a land-based relationship with everyone and each other. I want us to return to that. It, for me, it means that we have to, once again, I think it's everyone's responsibility to, uncolonize our roots, um, to mm -hmm. wipe away 
what whiteness has taken from everyone and what it is doing to the land, what it's doing to everything at large and re-indigenize the world and our relations. Mm-hmm. You know, our relations are are pretty messed right now. And I think we have to, we have to uncolonize what those look like. Where can people support uh, the work that you're doing, whether it be on Instagram, online, any handles? Um, yeah, Sh- uh, Cheyenne Liskanik is my Instagram handle. You can um, go ahead and support me on there. If you want to sign up for the website, uh, emails. I don't send very many, just like one a week. And you can sign up for those if you want. It's threemedicineslonghouse.com. And uh, yeah, I would love to invite everyone into the into the space, my space. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Cheyenne, for taking the time out of your day to join me on the Matriarch Movement podcast. And I really look forward to seeing more of your work happen. Uh, thank you so much, Shayla. This has been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0h at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in.